This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Our guest on this episode of Black Talk is professor, author, researcher, and artist, Dr. Clinton Hutton. Dr. Hutton has made many significant contributions to the areas of Afro-Caribbean thought, Africana and Caribbean political philosophy, and African-Caribbean spirituality, including Rastafari. His writing has tackled topics that include the Haitian Revolution, the Morrity Bay Rebellion, Black self-image, and masculinity. He received the University of West Indies Principals Research Award in 2012 and 2016, and was also awarded the Caribbean Hall of Fame Award for Excellence in recognition of his outstanding contributions in the field of visual arts. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender, with our guest, Dr. Clinton Hutton. Dr. Hutton, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So just to start us off, Dr. Hutton, you received uh, an honors degree, honors bachelor's degree in mass communications and a PhD in political science from the University of the West Indies. What inspired you to embark on the journey of a PhD and enter academia as a profession? Yes. I first uh, attended the Michael University College to be trained as a teacher in secondary education um, in in the visual arts. And then I taught for um, eight years and then went to the University of the West Indies for further training. And um, I know from a long while ago that I will be in teaching. I also know from a long time ago that I am going to go to the highest level possible in that. I grew up in a community where teachers were prized, where in my own family there are several teachers. And my father, who was born in 1893, um, I was born when he was in his 60s. (laughs) He really was an excellent storyteller. And so from I was a little boy, I heard from him stories about the European wars, World War I and World War II, about characters in them, Field Marshal Zhukov of the Soviet Army, Montgomery, Rommel, all of those characters. Uh, And of course, in the Second War, the Blitzkrieg. So before I was 10, I know the word Blitzkrieg. But I also learned about Jose Marti, because he, he lived in Cuba for a time. He worked there. So I learned about the liberation struggles in Cuba against Spanish and American colonialism. So, so I wanted to do that, to be a storyteller as well in the classroom. And so um, I started teaching um, as a pre-trained teacher when I was 16 years old. And I've been teaching since then. So from I was about three, I was either a student or a teacher. <laughs> right? 
and, and so I, I knew from a long time that I wanted to do a PhD and I want to be the best storyteller of all. Storytelling as a way of teaching and a way of educating, that was endowed in me by my father and that oral tradition in my community of Jericho in Hanover, in Western Jamaica. The oral culture of folk tales of African Jamaican spirituality, of uh, mythological characters like Anansi, Dopi, River Mumma, all of those things, they were told in story forms. And so even before I started teaching officially at age 16, before I went to college, I was teaching people in my age group and older than my age group as a student. Here am I, and I continue to, to engage daily. Uh, there is no end to self-educating one's journey. I always see education as something that is uh, that should be done in perpetuity. As long as you are around, then you should be engaged in educating yourself. And to me, the most important value one can get from education is really to develop one's ability to teach oneself. Self-directed learning is the most powerful form of learning. Any institution, what they should help their student to develop is their, is their ability to teach themselves to learn. So I did my PhD in, in political science. And of course, I have engaged in over 100 conference presentations. I've organized numerous conferences in the Caribbean region and further afield. Um, I've written many journal articles and book chapters, numerous. And I have also published hundreds of works of um, artistic nature. I've published um, a number of books and they deal with the different issues that I am, you know, I'm interested in. Um, issues relating to the history of our people relating to their culture, trying to find out uh, the essence of their cultural ethos and the implication of that for their, their ability to make things happen. I believe that um, I should pay homage to my ancestors. I could not be here without my ancestors. And I could not have a voice unless I speak for my ancestors. My voice could not be an authentic voice if it does not um, speak for ancestry. And therefore, ancestry is an ongoing project. It's anti-colonial um, in this 21st century. It is the way in which they shape identity. It is ways in which they shape their journey and the implications of their journey for our journey. And all of these things and these time frames shaped my, my views 
and shape what I what I do. Um, I was just going to say that uh, that's impressive. It's impressive how you how you learned about the term blitzkrieg so early because I didn't learn about that term until I took a university level class on World War II. So I, I I'll commend your father for that. And uh, moving on here. You've uh, written numerous papers that examine topics such as Jamaican popular music and the origins of DJing in Jamaica, among others as well. Can you speak a little bit about how music found its way into your scholarship and why you thought it was important to explore these topics in your writing? Okay. And it goes back again to, to my, my childhood. I like music from a young age. In fact, in the African diaspora community across the world, certainly in my community of Jericho and Hanover, music was a constant. Um, their music, when somebody dies and you have a wake and funeral services, traditional Jamaican music, which became uh, a source for the creation of Jamaican popular music, traditional music forms like buru and mento and so on, they were used as part of one's daily life. People would sing for pretty much everything. And there were also dance forms in relation to these, these songs. And of course, the musical instruments that were used, there were a lot of improvisational instruments and the, the mood of singing and so on. Those things struck me from very, very early in my life. And so when the recording industry developed in Jamaica, there were sound systems in my community. Sound system was really a Jamaican institution. And there was also the, the jukebox. And so you hear music from that level all the time. And so, for whatever reason, when I hear some songs, I was fascinated by the way they were, they were sung, but I was also fascinated by musical instruments and fascinated by particular artists. For example, at a very young age, I became familiar with the work of Don Drummond, the great Jamaican um, trombonist. And so when I when I came to, to Kingston to study, I immediately started to search out about him. And in fact, I have done a number of um, seminars and symposia on Drummond and his music. And so is the case with many other musicians. Their tone, their inflection, the way they say things, what they sang about, the way instrumentalists play their instruments, I find tones and inflections in instrumentation themselves from a very young, young age. And so I have always had that type of interest, not just in Jamaican music, but the music across the Caribbean and music across the world. So I've been engaged in writing about music, looking at music from a philosophical standpoint. And I've engaged in looking at Jamaican music, especially its contribution to, to philosophy, the philosophy of being, 
philosophy relating to knowledge. So, so I've engaged the lyrical content of music, like Marley, Bob Marley, who is certainly one of my heroes and who has had a, a big impact on my life. Um, big influence, huge influence. I have been playing his music almost all my life since I could afford to, to buy records and, and so on. And, and there are many more of our Jamaican singers, musicians, lyricists, um, Peter Tosh, Bonnie Wheeler, Bob Andy, uh, Jimmy Cliff, many, many of them. But generally speaking, you know, music across the Caribbean, in Trinidad, Kaiso are, are what is called Calypso, what originally was called Kaiso, um, the music of David Rudder, the music of Francisco Slinger, otherwise called the Mighty Sparrow, um, and of course Cuban musicians, I mean, Paris Prado, Benny Murray, uh, forms like mumba, rumba, and so on. And of course, across the United States, the blues, spirituals, going back to the time of slavery. So it's, it's really part of my, my cultural and, and philosophical ethos, really. So, Professor Hutton, uh, so you talked about being a philosopher in terms of music, understanding music and the traditions of, of Borhu and Jukebox and, and, and even Kaiso and, and Calypso and so on. But do you consider reggae to be probably the most prominent cultural medium of African liberation and Pan-Africanism? I, I would say so. As a global music in terms of the articulation of issues such as freedom and justice, reggae music, I think, more than any other form, more than any other Caribbean form, more than any other Jamaican form, uh, and more than any other global form, even though other global forms do speak to issues of freedom and justice and identity and, you know, political, explicit political issues. Reggae in its classical period, reggae of the late 1960s and the early 1980s, was essentially, or for the most part, let me put it that way, a music about freedom and justice. Reggae spoke to issues of the anti-colonial struggle globally, but especially the anti-colonial struggle in Africa. I mean, I remember meeting some members of Nkumto Wesezwe. Um, these are soldiers of the, the ANC who have seen battle in South Africa. I remember speaking to some of them, along with some members of SWAPO, Southwest African People's Organization, as well as some members of the Patriotic Front of Zimbabwe. I've actually spoken to some of them. and. When they heard that I was from Jamaica, some of them began to say, um, reggae, 
Bob Marley. And, and in reasoning with them, they told me that they went to battle singing the songs of Peter Tosh and Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff. And they told me that in some of their, their most difficult moments, it is the songs of Peter Tosh and Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff that kept them going. And so reggae had a tremendous impact on the liberation struggles in Africa. And in fact, it's like a teaching guide to the, the population. So, so, so when, for example, in, in the struggling Angola, the authentic liberation force in Angola was the MPLA. And so there are songs about the MPLA. There's an, an LP called MPLA. It was the determination of reggae artists that people stop from saying that, you know, we should support all three, you know, they are the FNLA and the, the, the Savimbi group and, and so on. It began first in reggae music. And in fact, when you look at the jacket of some of these albums, you used to see African figures connected to the liberation movement. And so, for example, in Bob Marley's Uprising LP, in the inside cover of the album, there's a picture of some, some um, liberation fighters in there, as well as a picture with Ailey Selassie standing with one of his feet on an unexploded bomb during the time when Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1935. And I must say that the principal agency of freedom and justice in reggae music is Rastafari, an anti-colonial group that emerged in Jamaica in the early 1930s with the coronation of, of Rastafari as Emperor Ailey Selassie I, who was then deified in Rastafari. And this type of philosophy of African liberation, African redemption, of repatriation, of also of reparation, um, that it is out of the Rastafari group, which is anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movement of Pan-Africanism. Its founding um, fathers were essentially members of the Marcus Garvey movement. And um, they were arrested by the British the most prominent um, founder of the Rastafari movement, Leonard Percival Howell, was by 1933 arrested and charged for sedition, charged for telling Jamaican people that their king is not King George of England, but Eilis Selassie. And he was arrested for that and imprisoned for two years, Right? And, and subsequently, he was arrested on at least three more occasions by the British, who were the colonial power controlling Jamaica during that time. Mm -hmm. In the edited volume, The Pan-African Pantheon, Prophets, Poets, and Philosophers, edited by Adekeye Adabagio, you wrote a brilliant chapter titled Bob Marley, Revolutionary Prophet of African Unity. 
When we think of the legendary Bob Marley, we immediately associate him with Jamaican reggae music and the commercial elements of that music. But as you pointed out, Marley was much more than a popular reggae singer. He was a revolutionary prophet in the Rastafarian movement. Can you tell us a little bit about Rastafarianism and its place in the history of Caribbean and African diaspora anti-colonial efforts? So, so um, Rastafari evolved a type of Pan-Africanism that merged Gaviism with an articulation of Ethiopianism that came with the deification of Ayla Selassie. So it's a type of Pan-Africanism framed in Garveyism, but also framed in a type of spirituality. And, and of course, linked to Ayla Selassie because of a number of things. Um, in 1930, at the coronation, it was pretty much Ethiopia that was the unconquered nation the only unconquered African nation coming out of the, the Berlin Conference of the 19th century in which European powers came together and agreed over a big map in Berlin hosted by Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany then, and which shared up Africa in a map in their conference room. And so Italy was to get Ethiopia. And when they went to claim Ethiopia in 1898, the Ethiopian defeated them at the Battle of Addo. That battle is a perennial part of Rastafari celebration annually at that time of the year. So um, Rastafari felt that Ethiopia must be special because it was able, where no other African nation was able to retain its sovereignty by defeating the power that claimed it, the European power that claimed it. So, so, so Rastafari emerged out of Garveyism. Its agency uh, was Garveyite. Um, its main founding figures were Garveyites. But it also came out of the tradition of the Jamaican folk African spiritualities. Uh, to mention two, Kumina, which came to Jamaica by way of the Congo after slavery was abolished in Jamaica in, in 1838. Congolese indentured laborers were brought to Jamaica. And it is out of that that they brought with them what we call kumina. Kumina was a, a spiritual, cultural expression um, and movement which had a tremendous impact on the identity formation ethos of Rastafari. And so, for example... When you hear Marley singing a song like Naughty Dread, Naughty Dread, Naughty Dreadlocks, a dreadlocks bingy Congo eye. Those are all Congolese words. Right? And the core of the Rastafari movement in its early stages were either people of Congolese descent 
are people of an older African tradition in Jamaica that became known in the 1860s, early 1860s, as revival. Formerly, revival was Mayal, and Mayal undergo changes to become revival. And there are two traditions of revival. One is called Poco or Pocominia. Poco was actually a, a plant in the Congo that was used to soak in, in water and to flash at the feet of adherents in, in ceremonies to induce spirit possession. And so that name became a description or a name for one sect of, of the revival people. The other sect is called Zion, or 60, referring to 1860 when it came into being. And, and its best known leader in the pantheon of revival was a man by the name of Alexander Bedward. And Alexander Bedward was placed in prison in 1921 by the colonial police and sent to the lunatic asylum, as they call it then, at Bellevue, which is what they did to our leaders. Say so they are mad and sent them to incarceration in the lunatic asylum. And he actually died eight days after the crowning of Eilis Selassie in the Bellevue Asylum. Um, but his, his followers or his supporters became some of the core members of the earliest formation of Rastafari. There were so two sets of people, the Kumina people and the Bedwadites became the main source of the earliest formation of Rastafari and the earliest source, therefore, of shaping the identity of Rastafari, its identity, but also its philosophy. Right? And later generations of Rastafari continued to articulate, to flesh out, the philosophy and cultural ethos of Rastafari to the point where, while in the 1930s, the earliest set of Rastafari did not wear dreadlocks, by the 1940s, with a new set of youths in the Rastafari movement, started to wear their hair in dreadlocks, inspired by Mama fighters in the, in the anti colonial struggles of the Kenyan people against British colonialism. I know, for example, of a Rasta man. He's called um, Ras Arbongo, Roy Ivory. I interviewed him and I asked him how long ago he started wearing dreadlocks. And he told me from 1951. So I said to him, so what motivated you to wear your hair in dreadlocks? He said, the Mau Mau. Right? So, so that this back and forth between Africa and its diaspora was very and remains very, very important. Our great Caribbean literary figure and historian, 
Kamau Brathwaite, the way he described it, pointing on dialectics, is tidalectics. That the same tide that brought the people from Africa to the Caribbean, then brought back the Caribbean and African in the Americas, generally, to Africa. So, so that this back and forth continues, that the diaspora is not divorced from a global Africa, or what is called Africa at home. It's coined by, by Garvey, you know, Marcus Garvey was talking about um, Africa belongs to those from home and abroad, from those on the continent and those in the diaspora. You mentioned several important points, especially those concerning Marcus Garvey and how the founding figures of Rastafari were in fact Garveyites. As we know, the messages of Pan-Africanism and Black empowerment that Marcus Garvey preached were silenced through his politically motivated imprisonment in America and his eventual deportation to Jamaica in 1927 when the Rastafari movement began to emerge there. Could you speak a little bit about how Rastafari was received in Jamaica and how reggae music acted as a vehicle to spread its messages? When Jamaica became an independent nation in 1962, nine months after that, the Jamaican government suppressed the Rastafari movement and the Prime Minister Alexander Bustamante issued a statement saying that all, all Rastafarians should be brought in and if you can't bring them in, uh, take them to Bogil. Bogil is the name of the cemetery in Montego Bay. This is not the British colonial governor. This is the prime minister of Jamaica. But under tremendous pressure, and there's an album called The Black Art Man. Please listen to that album by Bonnie Whaler, one of the whalers. He did an album called The Black Art Man which is really talking about the tribulations of Rastafari. And the signature song on that album is called Black Art Man, but you also have Battering Down Sentence and other songs. Very, I regard this as one of the best albums I've ever heard anywhere in the world. Listen to it. And, but, but it talks about Rastafari living in the dungeons, living in the lonely parts of the country. It really was talking about the isolation of Rastafari by the government, by ordinary Jamaican people, even by the families of some of those youths who were Rastafari. But they develop something that we call a reasoning that they term groundation, like groundings, that's where you got one of, of Rodney's book from, uh, Walter Rodney's book, The Groundings with My Brothers, comes from the word groundation, which is a reasoning that Rastafari usually enacted um, over the years of being subordinated in either way places. And so it was reasoning mixed with, with music and theater. 
and ganja or, or, or marijuana being used um, as a sacrament. But the reasoning that came out of that had a tremendous impact on Bob Marley, on the whalers, on Bob Andy, on Jimmy Cliff, and in fact, most of the, the artists in that period of, of the development of reggae music. And one of, one of the big leaders of that process was Martimo Plano, the inspiration and mentor to Bob Marley. He shaped Bob Marley's philosophy, and Marley is certainly a genius. Shaped his philosophy and his philosophy of Rastafari, which is then articulated in his music. Um, Groundation is now called Nyabingi, and there's a group of Rastafari, the one that started wearing dreadlocks. Their principal leader was called Bongo Wato, or Bonajis. Had a tremendous impact, not just on Rastafari and Jamaica, but spread Rastafari first across the Caribbean and then further afield. And of course, in, in, in reggae music, I went to Guadeloupe. I was invited to a Rastafari community to talk about the history of Rastafari. And um, in this community of Rastafarians, they told me that they first heard about Bob Marley before they heard about Eileen Selassie. And so they became Rasta, not because of Eileen Selassie, but because of Bob Marley, because of listening to Bob Marley's music. Right? And so while the term groundation is, is not in full currency anymore, um, Anaya Bingi still does that. It's really a development of that process. All right. So um, you've been able to design several courses in the Department of Government at the University of the West Indies that explore Black history and significant historical Black figures. Uh, this is an area of study that many predominantly white institutions have yet to embrace. So why do you think it's important for university students, uh, whether they're Black or of any other race, to learn about this history? Yes, because we have a history in which Black voices have been marginalized, that's the first thing, and therefore the, the history is a history of half-truths, a history of lies, history of fabrications to justify 400 years of the shaping of a world on the basis of brutality, on the basis of genocide, on the basis of enslavement, subjecting not just African people to uh, a way of seeing the world, which marginalizes them, but also to educate Europeans to see the world in that way. And as a result of that, you really cannot have fulsome freedom and justice in this world, in this 21st century, without reshaping the narrative of knowledge, of being, that is the issue of identity. Because if there are people, if, if people exist in the world today who feel that, that being white is an identity that must be preserved 
at all costs, then they cannot be criticized because what they are doing is expressing their identity. Right? And so blatant injustices are perpetuated by people who hold themselves to be right. That what they say is really what obtains in the world. In other words, the world of white supremacy is dangerous to all human beings, all of the human family. Black people cannot free themselves from white supremacy by themselves. Black people are not free from white supremacy if white people are not free from white supremacy. And therefore, teaching about black history is not for black people alone. Teaching about the colonial or the, the Colombian world order is both for white people and black people and everybody else. Because that world order shape the way they see themselves and the way they negotiate themselves in the world. You really cannot talk about justice and freedom if that type of mindset consciously or unconsciously shape our minds, shape the way we know things, shape the way we think. In other words, shape our epistemological landscape. And therefore, we have to develop courses for everybody that will talk frankly about the world in a way that is liberating to everybody. And the more that is done is the more there will be resistance to it. It has to be done. We reach a point where books are being banned in schools today. That's crazy. Books from authors that are global icons in the literary field are being banned today. I am saying the, the world is making a retrograde step, right? And it's dangerous to the world. It's dangerous. And therefore, black studies is not something for black people. It's for all people. Because it seems as if we have black studies and then we have real studies, right? Black studies, oh, for your satisfaction, you can engage in that, black people. But, but white people do not have to be engaged in that, right? As if we exist in, in, in a different world. We exist in the same world. The same world in which some people, because of the color of their skin, are deemed to be superior aesthetically. Some people, because of the color of their skin, are deemed to be inherently inferior intellectually. And so one of the things I usually do, you know, to my students is to ask various things, various questions about certain type of inventions. Who you think did this and that? 
And many of the time, things that are invented are assumed to, to be done by white people. It is taken for granted that they, that they invented these things. If, if you hope to change the world, you have to change what is within you. You, you have to change the internal colonial episteme within you. And when I say you, I mean everybody. It is not just those who are oppressed that have to change these, these things that really shape people's sense of self and therefore sense of privilege. And therefore, when you talk about invention in schools, you have to talk about the agency of invention. I, I remember when my son was in, in high school and doing mathematics in Jamaica, and they were teaching them about the history of mathematics. I then have to go and get math books to teach him about the agency of mathematics that exists amongst East Indians, amongst ancient Africans, amongst the Aztecs and the Mayans. Because there's an assumption that real mathematics emanate from Europe. It is taken for granted that that is so. There are many things that are taken for granted. You can't jump over these things. You can't assume that people will know any better. Right? You can't assume that icons of Western philosophy, that somehow what they see and what they have articulated, that these are universal truths. Well, all the icons of modern Western philosophy were profoundly racist. We are talking about Immanuel Kant. We are talking about George Hegel. We are talking about iconic figures in Western philosophy. David Hume. We are talking about whether they emanated from Germany or Britain or France, that somehow what they articulate is universal truth and therefore they should be seen in that light without examining. Because what has happened since the end of the Second European War, World War II, they call it, what happened after that was the, um, the conscious burying of the racism of their philosophers so that there are certain works. You can have them if you search for them because you have that interest. Otherwise, those works are not published and are hidden. And in the books about philosophy, what you will see are their views about epistemology, not their racist epistemology that shaped the globe, but epistemology that they consider to be Universal, right? It's, it's hidden in plain sight. And therefore, you have to develop courses. Black scholars, Asian scholars, white scholars, because we have to reshape the map of knowledge, of epistemology, of the way we think, whether in philosophy, or psychology, or politics, or in history. 
whatever. And yep. as you as you go by along doing that, is the blowback. And the blowback is to ban books. And some people are actually saying, we can't have you teaching certain things because it is going to make certain people feel guilty. And, and yet, they are the same ones who will tell you, well, you know, I never had, I, I, I just born, I was just born 40 years ago. I had nothing to do with slavery. So why are you asking me to pay reparation? And yet, every day, every day, they live within the philosophical terrain of privilege and the articulation of privilege. We, it has to be consciously dealt with. You can't wait for time for it to, to, to be washed away. You have to engage it consciously. And you engage it consciously in all the departments. We have one world to live in. And some people think that total destruction is the only solution. But this is the only world we have to live in, at least now. And that's one of the points I want to end off on, because um, reparations, uh, as in, I know that you in the Department of Government, uh, I think you're developing courses on reparations. And I think this is a way to, to educate younger generation of not just black kids, but also white kids about the importance of um, addressing the wrongs that have been done uh, in the past. So um, could you talk to us a little bit about reparations and uh, how you're approaching this particular subject in your classes? Reparations is an issue about, about justice. And it's about reconciliation. In dealing with the issue of justice, including, of course, transitional justice, what happened to states that have been colonized? What happened to a people that was colonized? Is it that you, you say to them, okay, today you are free. And that's it. Nothing else. And all the discrimination that prevented them from getting equal opportunity, including equal pay, including equal access to education and educational facilities. When, when that, that system continued after the abolition of colonial rule, do, well, are these things not happening still, despite the end, formal end to colonialism? They're still happening. That legacy is there. And that is why you develop courses about reparations. So you talk about history of colonialism, the history of the colonial rhetoric and its philosophy, the history of... Um, of colonial injustice, but at the same time, you have to teach about the history of the struggle against colonialism. What was done by the colonized to get justice, to get equality, and, and what happened in the process of doing this. People who struggle for justice and fair play 
were assassinated. So that that's that's these are facts. That legacy has to be dealt with, and reparation is a form of is for me the highest form of of articulating justice, but also reconciliation. And and that is why I, I mean in 1971 the Whalers did a song penned by Bob Marley. And he's now talking about Jamaican politics, but it can be widened. The song is called Slave Driver. It says in part, every time I hear the crack of the whip, my blood runs cold. I remember on the slave ship how they brutalize our very soul. Today, they say we are free only to be chained to poverty. Now, Marley was talking about what slavery did to Jamaicans for 329 years of our forebearers working without pay, with poverty imposed on them, without them being able to pass on to their children and their children's children, the fruit of their labor. This, this is 1971. This is eight, nine years after independence. One cannot see any serious development of Jamaica because we are still chained to that poverty. You have to solve this issue for the nation state called Jamaica to develop with its people. And therefore, reparation is legitimate. And it's legitimate for the victims as well as those who are with the victimizers. The world cannot go on indefinitely without dealing with these issues. Because these issues will continue to repeat themselves, to show themselves over and over and over again until they are dealt with. So thank you so much, um, Clinton. Uh, uh, this has been a wonderful um, interview about reparations, about Bob Marley, the music, uh, the, the links to philosophy, uh, the links to knowledge, and what you're doing in terms of retraining our minds to think differently about, about these issues. So thank you so much for imparting that wisdom to, to our listeners. And um, I think it's a good way to end uh, to say that um, unless we have justice and unless we have reconciliation, those two things that you mentioned are very important, uh, we are going to be reliving the same uh, history all over again. So thanks very much for sharing that with us. And thanks for joining us. Yes. And one thing before I go. Recently, I, I after spending 25 years at the University of the West Indies, I am the, the director of the, the Institute for Technological and Educational Research at the Michael University College. 
and um, I am involved in trying to get to train teachers because if teachers are not trained to go into the classroom to deal with these issues, then we continue to socialize our children at whatever age into the, the type of world that has caused so much problems from generation to generation to generation, which many people are increasingly saying we can't take it anymore. Yes. Well, thank you so much, um, Professor Hutton. And thanks so much for, for enlightening us and, and enlightening the listeners uh, of this podcast about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. So thank you for having me. And if anything, feel free to call. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. Yeah, give me big face, jump back in the boat, walk up and scream up on my